0: The dog selects that which is relevant and does not respond to that which has not been selected.
1: We are motoring now. Welcome to Learning About Dogs, a podcast for people who love learning about dogs. I sure do. I'm Sue McGuire, I'm the manager of a canine behavior program at a small nonprofit animal shelter just north of San Francisco. And with me is Kay Lawrence of Learning About Dogs. Wow, we've had some great conversations about planning, whether or not you teach a behavior to a dog. And today is one of my absolute favorite topics. It's cues and cue hierarchy. What? Yeah, I know. Bingo. Bingo. Here we go. You know, uh, a couple of episodes ago, we were talking about um, uh, cues and whether or not the dog is determining Mm. relevant cues and, oh, I just think this is such a rich topic. Um, And and then you threw out cue hierarchy and the dog relevant cue and and the dog determining it and me having a conversation with Dr. Friedman Mm. about how I think Mm. dogs have actually selected the cue, but we just don't know what it is. And, oh, where do
0: we begin? Well, that's one of the fave, rather clumsy quotes that I like to use The dog selects that which is relevant and does not respond to that which has not been selected. Sounds a bit clumsy because that is attributed to Darwin. (laughs) You know, uh, a few hundred. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Because it's about natural selection. Yes, and that the animals that were able to select that which is relevant and likely to kill you and that which is not relevant and not likely to kill you are the ones that survived. So being able to make those selection processes is part of evolution. Okay. So to be able to, for, uh, you know, us to be able to move forwards, we have to be able to look at a situation and work out what we need to respond to and what we don't need to respond to. So I remember teaching the, co- the kids in college communication skills, and these are computer students all boys (laughs) and their face-to-face communication skills or verbal communication skills were basically, um, in today's jargon, pants. So I would sit them in a situation like this where they may have to listen to a client over the phone and give them instructions. And I gave them um, like an ordnance survey map of a whole uh, small area of a county and the other student had the duplicate copy. And they would start at a point that I had set on the map and they would have to navigate by looking at the map to the destination. And the student would have to write down the notes of what they were given information on and then tell them what destination they got to. So it's quite a good game for kids that are in college. So, um, you know, they'd start to say, well, they'd go. Oh, well, you've got to go up to the junction with the A434. But forget to say you need to go left or right. And then when you go to the junction, you'll see that there's there's a little diddly bit on your left and you're going, Is this relevant or not relevant? So somebody's giving me instructions, I have learnt if I have to write the notes, how much of the instructions are relevant to me that I need to be able to go forwards, and how much is not relevant. So I remember given directions by this guy to get to this place. It's a long previous before we had technology to help us. He says, and you're going to go along the road until you get to a tunnel. He said, now, when you get out the other side of the tunnel, I'm going, well, if I've gone in the tunnel, where else would I go but get out the other side of the tunnel? So it was all a lot of irrelevant stuff about you know, looking at those trees on the left. And I'm going, I don't need to know that, <laughs> you know. So um, it takes experience to know what you need to write down. And this would be the same as taking notes of a lecture. What do you need to write down and what is just a story? Now, I'm quite, ai fill in a lot of examples and demonstrations when I might be giving instructions. Well, nobody needs to write down the stories. Nobody needs to write down all that bit about me and doing the college kids because that's an illustration It's not a relevant piece of information that you need to be able to put down, leave it to one side because you want to come back to it later on. So the whole note taking and giving instructions process needs practice. And this is what we were trying to teach them. So um, to me, it's a little bit same as the dogs. They have to learn that if I move my hands a certain way consistently, it means a piece of food is going to go over there. If i move my hands a different way it means i'm going to put my hand in the palm of food in the palm of my hand and offer it to you under your chin and if i move a different way it means that i'm going to dip into my pocket so the dogs are studying us all the time for things that will become relevant to them so when we start to give cues we like to use words and certainly since um John Pilly brought out that wonderful book with Chaser, where he taught this Border Collie a thousand words. Mm, wonderful! Story. I have, yes, I have. Start, you know, I have no restriction now on the number of words I use, but you absolutely need to give them with consistency. You can't have lie down, down, lie down, down, lie down. You know, every one of those is four different cues. If you don't have delivery consistency, you are very limited by the amount of cues you can ever use just as equally as there's six people in the family that are going to say the dog's name and everybody says their dog's name at least six different ways. Mm -hmm. Well, that's 36 cues for the dog. (laughs) So they need to know who's interested, who's cross with you, who's doing this, who's doing that. So they will learn tone, but delivering in a consistent pitch makes it more likely the dog will remember it. And then the interesting thing when we're training border collies on sheep The dogs listen to the pitch. So the phrase we use, which might be um, come by. Yes, there's a definite tone to come by. And if I whistle it, it's exactly the same pitch and tone. So I never actually need to teach them the whistle. They will pick up the whistle straight away from the way I said the words come by. If I was consistent in saying come by. But if I went, come by, come by, come by, come by, come by, they, they wouldn't have any idea what the words are relating to when I teach the whistles. And they can very quickly pick up speed so I can go, come by, and they will slow down. Come by, come by, come by, and they will speed up.
1: Really? So they can
0: – oh, yes, 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 yes. Oh. <laughs> I'm just... Bless wow. them, they're that good. <laughs> <laughs> So if I was, say, teaching a dog to back up, the way I present the back up, back up, back up, they're going quite slowly. But if I start going back up, 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 they will start getting faster as they do it. So wanting these words to be what the dog hears, you want that word to be the dominant cue. But it's... it's it takes training to reduce all the other things that are going on to not be the dominant cue. So if I look at something like the backing up, so the dog's standing in front of me and I want them to walk backwards away from me. Most people, when they teach this, will tip their heads backwards as the dog walks backward. Well, since dogs are predators, they would notice that tip of the head lifting up of your chin and they would take that as the dominant cue. So it wouldn't matter whether you said back up, step up, put up, shut up. <laughs> if you've got your chin lifted, that's what they'll go on. And we think they're doing it on the word. <laughs> yeah. So the only way to really check what they've learned as the dominant cue is to actually give them the verbal sounding when the dog can't see you or put something, you know, like a screen, like a sheet of paper over the front of your face and see if the dog can still pick it up. So I often teach... I like, I like to use luring. If I'm luring, what my hands are doing are the dominant cues and it's only one hand. So if I have food in my left hand and I'm teaching the dog how to do it with a lure, that is the dominant cue at that time. What my right hand's doing is irrelevant. Um, so you wouldn't be swapping hands halfway through because the dog has thought, this is the one that's going to feed me, so this is the one I'll pay attention to. And then they find food's coming in from somewhere else and it's all all, awfully difficult. If I'm using the cup on the stick, which is a sort of um, a measuring cup on a, a stick that's probably twice as long as my arm. So it gives me the opportunity to use luring off my body and I can see what the dogs are doing out there. When that cup is in place, it is the dominant cue and anything else I'm doing is not relevant. And I think by teaching the dogs these... The, the concept of a dominant cue as opposed to trying to listen to every cue and not knowing which is dominant because sometimes they say sit but their face looks pissy. Sometimes they say sit and their hands move. Sometimes they say sit and they take a step towards me. You know, there's the, this dominant cue is, is not consistent. It's constantly changing all the time. Then it's much harder for the dog to actually learn sit face, sit bad face, sit good face, hand sits. Feet sits, lead sits, door sits, and all the other variations of sit that can can come along as well. So this slows down the process of learning a cue. So if you're not clear what you want the dog to pick up as the dominant cue, we end up teaching them too many subdominant cues, if you like, with nothing really leading the way, um, and and this makes it much harder for the dogs to be consistent in responding to the cues.
1: So let me ask you, um, during the acquisition stage, when you are luring the behavior, you're specifically doing one cue. When Mm -hmm. would you add in a second cue that you want to be attached to that behavior? For example, you're luring, and at some Mm -hmm. point you want to turn that very dominant cue into a verbal cue.
0: When I've finished shaping it, so when it's reached what I call performance, I don't want my my final cue to have anything to do with the teaching process. So at that time, you know, the way my hand moves with the foods in it teaches the dog how to maybe go round an object. Yes, so follow the hand this way. Oh, wow, there you go. Mark, chuck. Follow the hand this way round. Lovely, mark, chuck. Round we go again. Super, mark, chuck. There will be a whole supporting cast to this cue so the hand doesn't move out in space by itself there's a way that I'm moving my wrist and my elbow there's a way that I lean towards the hand and out it goes now at that time I could be prompting myself to use the word go round or circle or something like this the chance of the dog hearing that is low because they're going to focus on the hand the food and when it's going to release for the thing but it's quite useful for the trainer to start trying out different words that tend to suit that behavior yes so um once that behavior is the shape i want it to be so say i want my dog to trot around a cone when that trot is fluent and stable and consistent without stuttering from the minute they collect that piece of food until they go to get the next one it's a nice smooth pattern all the way around until i've got that i wouldn't want to even think about what the final cue is going to be. Now, if you were training at fragility, if your dog's trotting around your object, you're thinking, no, no, I want my dog to run around my object because these are your future wings. You need the dog to be able to do a sprinting turn around this object. Well, until you've got that, you wouldn't want the final cue to be anywhere in the picture whatsoever. Yes, yeah, so if you're still shaping that behavior up to mastery, you're on the training cue, teaching cue, and then when you've got to mastery, you go through the process of changing over to the final cue.
1: I think what I get confused about is, let's use the example of going around a cone and then going around a cone at speed, is, you know, I, I, I get confused because I consider to be the object the cue, the more dominant cue than me. Yes, but
0: a cone can go around both ways, can't it? It, Yes.
1: And so that was my next question is that do you wait (laughs) to say – oh, that's okay. Do you wait to say uh, uh, spin, twirl around the object or whatever your directional cues are? Do you wait for the behavior to – It's not a modifier.
0: No, no. No. No? If I give the cue circle, it means go around it clockwise. If I give the cue go round, it means go around anticlockwise. Okay. The object is the same.
1: Okay, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Do you wait till okay. you have shaped the behavior both directions before you start attaching your modifier cues?
0: They're not modifiers. It's not around left and around right. That's a modifier. Yeah. These are separate cues for separate behaviors. They're quite different behaviors. Explain. So um, a modifier would say turn left, turn right, pour left, pour right, the left and right being the modifier? Yes. Yes, and if you give that cue, turn left, turn right, spin left, spin right, paw left, paw right, the dog has to wait until the second part of the cue to know what to do. Ah. Well, at speed, you haven't got time for that. Mm -hmm. So if if you're heading up to an object, before the dog goes to the object to know which side to go, you need to be able to say, circle, go around. Hmm. And, you know, if you're yes, it should be learnt. you know, the proprioception skills needed to go around an object at speed that you'd need for agility. The dog is basically doing, to me, what looks like barrel racing. You know, they're going around these objects at some speed to do at least a 180 degree turn. Now, that takes a lot of muscle strength to not fall out of the turn. Exactly. Yep, so um, that might take you nine months to build up. Yes, you might be luring it with a toy. You might be luring it with your hand. Whatever you're luring it with, you're building up the physical balances in the dog to be able to do that behavior. Once you've taught it and the dog is fully fit to be able to do it at speed, then I'd put it on its performance cue. Hmm. Okay. That training cue has been attached to a lower quality of behavior and it can come back to bite you. Hmm.
1: Yep. Okay. Um, Okay, so Mm -hmm. I want to go back to um, when you, let's say we're teaching a sit, front sit, back Mm -hmm. sit. All right. Um, I'm always fascinated by, at at times you say, next go around, I might have my hand on my head. I might have my hand over here. I might be leaning on one leg or the other. At what point do you start into, so you say the cue, uh tell me take me through that process because i'm a little confused about do you say the what you want to have the dominant cue and then you throw in these supermodel poses or or what i think
0: if you train like a statue so i'm training the dog to do a nice bow um simply because sit is such a complex everyone thinks sit is the go-to behavior but the dog can sit forwards or sit backwards it can sit to rest and watch the clouds go by or it can sit there in anticipation of killing something you know and we use it for sitting on greeting it's so inappropriate for sit greeting that it's it's starting to become ridiculous um you know it's like asking people to be sleepy when they're saying hello to visitors And I was like, no, 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 no. You know, it's not cool. It's about, hello, I haven't seen you for ages. Anyway, um, I'm not on the final cue yet. I'm still on the training cue. So I've taught the dog to do the bow with the target stick. As the target stick is coming to show the dog where I want them to place their chest, I will make every effort to stand as inconsistently as possible each time. If every time you use the target stick, your body language is identical, then that target stick as a cue becomes attached to very specific body language and only likely to occur when that very specific body language matches the dominant cue. The same as the sit, if you like. So if you taught the dog to sit by raising the palm of your hand up towards like you're going to smack your forehead. If you stand perfectly still and teach that every time, smack yourself on the head, you know, that's the classic sit up type of um, lure training. You're probably standing with both feet roughly together. You might have your other hand somewhere near your treat bag or pocket and the dog is standing facing you. But when the dog stands at your side, it doesn't look anything like the same. It, the dog probably wouldn't even recognise it. So to give that behaviour the flexibility, it's not about teaching all the things you can do with your hands. It's making sure that you are not so, what you call it, cookie-cutter consistent every time you say sit, that the dog has not attached unnecessary body language that is not part of the future of that behaviour to the dominant cue. So if our dominant cue was the same, the word sit, but the hand is not in the future, standing with two feet together is not in the future, standing facing the dog is not in the future, then those need to be not consistently presented when we're teaching that cue process. Does oh, that make sense?
1: It does. It seems like such an oxymoron. At the same time, you want to be consistent in your dominant cue, but add variability mm-hmm. in the, yep. In yep. the wake yep. of that dominant cue or in the picture of that yep. dominant cue.
0: How because, you know, do we
1: know the dog for sure picks up the, the
0: cue Because they do the behavior.
1: That would be your answer.
0: Well, you know, the classic slap it on the dog's shoulders. Dogs are so poor at generalization. No, no, they're very, very good at generalization. But we are extremely poor at recognizing that the dog has picked up 16 elements that are normally in place when you ask the dog to sit. Okay, as soon as four of those elements are not in place, the dog doesn't respond. Oh, he's not generalizing. So if you've trained your dog to sit in the kitchen, after you've got the fridge, treats out the fridge, opened up the pot, put the mum on side, stood there, taken a breath, had a think, give the hand cue, the dog has now taken that whole pattern as part of the cue. The way you stand, the fact they're in a familiar environment. This is where if I pop my butt, I get my food. You know, we do this for their dinner. We do this for treats. We do this to give them a fuss. Now we want to take it outside the front of the house and the dog has said, yeah, but all those other things are not here. So how can I recognize what this means? How can I recognize what this means? So I think it's a little bit like driving down a road. The first time you go to a place, especially if you're using sat navs, GPS, part of your visual picture will be what the sat nav tells you at the roundabout, take the third exit. At the roundabout, take the second exit. And you are seeking the minimum relevant information from the instructions that's given to you. If you didn't have those instructions given to you, you probably would have noticed that on the left, there's a chip shop just before that roundabout. Oh, I must remember that next time I come through. Then I will know which way I have to go. You'll notice lots more different things. But if you didn't notice what was surrounding that environment, you would be entirely dependent on the sat-nav to tell you what's coming up and what to do next. So you might be able to get there faster with less effort on the sat-nav being the dominant cue. But if we took that dominant cue away, you would not be able to find your way there, which is exactly the same as generalization. You can't remember what to do because you haven't taken in the right information that's relevant to success. That starts to get a bit complex, doesn't it? It
1: I'm already trying to think, what am I going to do with my Saturday morning class? How am I going to help them through this process?
0: Mm. Mm. So it's, it's not about teaching them to generalize. Even if you do something simple like, say the dog goes to a target mat and that target mat is is it probably six to ten feet away from a wall. To start with, you put your back to the wall and you say to the dog, on your mat, the dog goes to the mat, click, lies down. When he went to that mat, he was looking at the rest of the room and he had you somewhere off behind their right. Yes, there was the picture. Now, imagine the mat is the centre of the room a centre of a clock, when you mark the dog and call it back to send it again, you've moved yourself to four o'clock on the clock. You started at six o'clock. You're now at four o'clock. Now, when you send your dog back to that mat, the background is different. Yes, because Mm -hmm. they're now facing a different way. And if you go around the clock and just say six repetitions or 12 repetitions, every time the dog does it, the environment changes There's a minor change to the environment. The mat's in the same place, but the picture is different. That behavior will generalize very, very quickly. But if you do those repetitions every time, the same way, the same way, the same way, the same way, that behavior becomes very fixed to the environment, nothing like as flexible. And then it looks like it's harder to generalize because you've built in too much inflexibility.
1: Ah, ah,
0: okay. Gotcha. 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 And you can do it the other way where you stand in the center of the clock and you ask the dog and you're facing six o'clock and the dog's at six o'clock. You ask the dog to do a nice bow or drop or down, whatever you like, mark it, throw your treat now till four o'clock and you turn to face four o'clock and it does the behavior at four o'clock and you throw your next treat to one o'clock. And as you go to each spot, if you stay in the center, that means you're rotating around on the spot. Every time the dog looks at you, there'll be a different background. Mm-hmm. Valuable and you learning. can set that up in hmm? yes, viable well, viable not the uh, uh it's flexible learning. Flexible. Okay. So that the dog looks at you Even just changing the background every time would help the dog to pick out what's relevant. And as you go around the clock the second time, you make up the rule that whatever you do, your hand has got to be doing something different. Left hand on your hip, left hand on your head, left hand picking your ears, left hand scratching your leg. You know, so as you go around the clock, you could have little prompts behind the clock, if you like, that say, change, do something different. Or even just a silhouette, you know, something prompts you to do something, a a variation that stops it getting locked to a fixed pattern
1: yeah don't worry you're not alone my head's spinning a little bit too this is an episode I'm probably going to go back and listen to myself a couple of times just to make sure I think I might be getting it For more information and some great reading from many contributors, go to Kay Lawrence's website, learningaboutdogs.com, or follow Learning About Dogs on Facebook. And here's my plug. Need a canine buddy? Check out our rescue center. Thanks for listening. More topics to come.